Welcome to another episode of the Christian Combatives Podcast. I am your host and servant in Jesus Christ, Paladin Actual. I'd like to try to do something a little bit different today. Now, normally what I do is I deliver a sermon on Sunday. I spend all week or maybe more than a week writing the sermon, researching it, and then eventually I deliver it. I write a manuscript and I deliver it to the congregation on Sunday. A lot of times afterwards on the drive home, what I'll do is I'll actually record myself on the drive home trying to regurgitate the sermon, or maybe it'll be a uh, Another day in the week, I'll try to regurgitate the sermon off the top of my head. This benefits me for a few ways. One of these ways is I better understand the content myself. Another reason is because I get to get this content out to more people, because you guys don't know what my church's YouTube channel is. Good luck if you can find it. It's not too hard. In any case, rather than doing that, rather than recording the sermon two times, once from a manuscript and once poorly off the top of my head, what I'd like to do is instead I'd like to start putting that sermon, that first recording, actually here on the podcast. Now, the audio isn't going to be as good until I get the microphone set up the right way, because right now my AV setup in church is I slap a phone on a tripod in front of me and just hit record. So what I'd like to try to do instead is I'd like to start this out, this episode, for example, I'd like to read the text. I'm going to read the text that I preached the sermon from, and after I've read the text, I'd like to go through it a little bit and give some insight, some of the things that I thought about, some of the things that didn't make it into the sermon, some of the things I stole from Issues, etc., or the Goddess Saints blog, or podcast, the Goddess podcast, (laughs) I know that that's a Goddess blog, the Goddess Saints podcast. Uh, those are some of the sources that I like to listen to every week while I'm preparing the sermon. So if you hear some things that are familiar, I absolutely ripped them off. So again, what I'd like to do first is I'd like to read the text. Then after I've read the text, I'm going to go through it and give some commentary, some things off the top of my head. Now, if I was doing a Bible study and people were asking me about the text, these, these are the kinds of things that I would bring up. After I've completed reading that and I've completed kind of talking about some of the things that jumped out from the text, some of the things I remember from other commentaries, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to play the audio from my sermon recorded from the pulpit on Sunday. You'll see it's a different tone because I don't act like such a, such a weirdo when I'm in the pulpit as I do in front of the microphone for the podcast. Also, if you actually are in my church, in my congregation, and you've already heard the sermon, then you can cut out, then you don't have to listen to it a second time. You've already heard that content, but you'll get new content before the sermon. So I'm hoping that this format can actually streamline the process of getting more content out to people without more work. And since I'm doing this pretty much all by myself, easier and more content is is a net benefit for the both of us. So without further ado, this past Sunday, which would be August 20th, 2023, this past Sunday was the 11th Sunday after Trinity, the historic one-year lectionary, the historic one-year series. Now, the the gospel reading from that was Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. If you'd like to follow along, I'm reading from the ESV, which can be found online, I believe, at esv.org, Bible Hub, Bible Gateway, or on your bookshelf. Let's get into it. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 and following. This he is talking about Jesus, by the way. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man 
went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Thus far our text. That is Luke chapter 18 verses 9 through 14 and the basis for the sermon. Now there's a few points that are worth getting into before we even kind of jump into the sermon. Now the first thing is that Jesus is telling a parable. Just because he's telling a parable, however, does not necessarily mean that this was not based on a true event. A lot of times, for example, people talk about the Good Samaritan, and whether the Good Samaritan is a parable or a description of an event that happened. In such cases like that, it could have actually happened, and in just such a case as this, this also could have happened. It's not, you know, outside of the realm of possibility. Uh, as with a bunch of other parables, there's often some sort of twist. This is one thing that Jesus does a lot. Uh, he gives a twist to the expected. So, for example, you'll have somebody sowing sowing their grain, sowing the seeds out in a field, and they're casting their seeds recklessly, right? Well, seeds are not necessarily cheap and easy to come by. So if a farmer is just throwing seeds everywhere, including on the, on the rocky soil, on the path, you know, etc., then this is not something a farmer would do, not a wise farmer in any case. That would not be, well, it would be wasteful. And in, in this case, in this case, what you have, the twist, the M. Night Shyamalan twist that Jesus introduces here is in the character of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So it's important to, to put your mind into the perspective of the people at the time. Now, we as modern-day Christians, we know that, you know, Pharisee equals bad guy, tax collector equals, well, there's Matthew slash Levi, the guy who's a tax collector, and he's a good guy, right? You know, he gave us the gospel account, uh, the gospel according to Matthew. In in this time, however, that's not how they would be seen. The Pharisee would be seen as the religious authority of the time. He'd be the guy who studies the Bible, who knows the Bible cover to cover. He'd be the guy who also practices the things that are commanded in the Bible. And he gets into this a little bit later on when he describes his own actions, which are not necessarily a bad thing. The tax collector, on the other hand, the tax collector was seen as the lowest of the low. The tax collector was somebody who worked for Caesar in spite of being a Jew. He was a traitor. This is how the tax collectors were seen. Tax collectors, as far as I understand it, tax collectors made their money not based on a paycheck or a salary, but instead tax collectors made their money by overcharging their fellow countrymen. So, for example, you owed, let's say, I don't know, 10 denarii to Caesar. <laughs> you, have to, you have to pay 10 denarii tax or whatever. And that, that's what you owe at the end of your, your year. You're following your W-2 or whatever. Now, the tax collector, not having a paycheck of his own, being hired by the, by the you know, the legion or whatever, by Caesar to collect the taxes from his own people, will say, hey, you actually owe 12 denarii. So you're paying the 10 denarii to Caesar, and guess who gets two denarii? The tax collector. Now, the tax collectors were notorious for, well, I mean, again, they're their literal job is to overcharge people, to over, just to make sure that Caesar gets his, but also to make sure that they get their own pockets filled. You'll see this later on with Zacchaeus, the wee little man, and how he talks about giving back his money to the poor and, you know, repaying, you know, multiple fold that which he took from them. So tax collectors were actually expected to be dishonest. They were loathed even more than the IRS. Now, the IRS, you know, you can argue about your taxes and say, I pay too many, too much taxes. But at least the IRS has a system where they say, look, this is how much you're going to owe in taxes. It's not an individual coming to you and, guess, and saying, guess what? I've, <laughs> I've altered the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. Uh, you're actually going to pay extra this year. So... As much as you may not like paying taxes now, the tax collectors back then were seen as the lowest of the low. Again, working for Caesar against their own people, they were seen as traitors. 
bad guys, as opposed to the Pharisees who were the, you know, the scribes of the, of the day, the guys who would know the law and would practice the law. They were the good guys. They were the guys who were in church every Sunday, for example. So this is the twist Jesus gives, is that actually these two people, one who's considered outwardly righteous and the other one who is considered outwardly despicable, their roles are actually reversed and their fate is actually reversed. So in any case, the way the text goes, he says, two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, again, it's important to remember what the function of the temple was. The function of the temple was to go and find a place to give you the forgiveness of sins. They were going to the temple to have their sins forgiven, to become justified. This is the appropriate thing to do. Both the tax collector and the Pharisee were sinners. They needed their sins forgiven, and the temple is the place to go and do that. Now, before you start asking yourself, well, why don't we go to the temple? Well, we do. The temple is Christ. Christ is the temple. He is the new temple. The, um, later on, when you have the, uh, uh, the lepers, the ten lepers or whatever, being healed, so it's probably your Thanksgiving text. When you have the ten lepers being healed and, and one of them runs back to, to Jesus, the others run to the temple, he alone understands that Jesus is the new temple. So, Jesus is the new temple. We no longer have to go to a physical location in Jerusalem, not that the temple exists in Jerusalem anymore. We go to Christ directly. The idea of the priesthood of all believers, a priest being the person who can approach God directly, you can approach God directly, hence priesthood of all believers. doesn't mean everybody's a pastor, but it does mean that you can directly ask God for forgiveness and be granted it. So these people were doing what they were supposed to. They were sinners. They went to the temple to receive forgiveness. They went to the temple to, to pray. At least, you know, they should be receiving forgiveness. That should be the idea. So the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now that is, <laughs> that's a little scummy, just like, you know, God, I thank you. I'm not like these other people in the congregation, especially not Gertrude over there. Good grief, what a gossip and an awful woman she is. I thank you, God, that I'm not like her. Um, yeah, so check your ego at the door a bit, although he does actually thank God for some legitimate things. You know, you can thank God, you say, I thank God that I'm not, you know, insert the sins that you're actually not committing. Maybe you actually resisted sin over this past week or something. That's not something, you know, that's bad to thank God for. You know, I thank God that I, I didn't have road rage, or I thank God that I didn't, you know, lose my temper, or I didn't gossip, or I didn't, you know, whatever. I thank God that I didn't fall into these sins. That's a good thing to thank God for. That's sanctification. That's a gift from God. That's God working in you, the Holy Spirit working in you. In any case, it would be a good thing to thank God for, except the way that he does it is kind of like, I thank God that, you know, I'm not like that person over there who doesn't really deserve to be forgiven. So that's where that's where things get that's where things get difficult. Now, again, if you're trying to wonder why Jesus is telling this parable, it explains it at the beginning. Um, verse 9 says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So this is actually the second part first. He's treating others with contempt. He's talking about himself being righteous. Uh, and he kind of goes into, in verse 12 and following, he talks about the deeds that he does to, to be considered righteous. Um, verse 12 says this, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So, you're supposed to fast every week in this tradition, but he does it twice as much. So not only does he does he do what is required of him, but he does double what is required of him, which is not required of him, um, <laughs> ironically. But he's talking about how righteous he is because of what he's done. It's interesting that the um, that the epistle text for the one-year lectionary today is Ephesians two one through ten. Now Ephesians two eight and eight and nine talk about being you know saved by grace through faith, uh, not by works, so that no one. No one can boast. At least I believe that was the text. I may have gotten that mixed up with a different one. In any case, it's talking about um, salvation by faith. Now, here this guy is is thanking God that he's that he's righteous, 
because of the things that he's done. It's not even, I thank God that I haven't engaged in any sin, but it's, I thank God that I've done these positive things as if, as if works are sort of a, a, a scale, you know, the, 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 the depiction of justice being blindfolded with a sword in one hand and a scale in the other, and your good works are weighed against your bad works or whatever. But that's not how it works. Like, you can do all the good works in the world, but if you, you know, if you've committed tax fraud, you're still going to prison. The IRS is still going to knock on your door. It doesn't matter how many times you've donated to charity. It does not undo the bad works that you've done. So he's talking about his good works. So those don't un, excuse me, those do not undo his his bad works, his sins that he doesn't even mention. So he comes to this temple. He's not asking for forgiveness, as far as we can see here. He's just kind of bragging about, you know, the good things. You know, thank you, God, that I'm such a great person. Now, by contrast, it shows the tax collector. The tax collector actually takes a proper, appropriate account of all of his actions, not just his good ones. It could very well have been that the tax collector did some good things over the week. Maybe he tithed as well. Maybe he fasted three times, you know? Uh, Maybe he fasted as well, but he doesn't talk about this. He doesn't talk about his own works as if doing good works undoes the bad work that he's done. Uh, He stands far off. He doesn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. Um, and he beats his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knows who he is. He knows that he needs help. He knows that his help comes from God, not from his own works. He's not saying, dear God, please help me be a better person so that I don't need, <laughs> I don't need your forgiveness anymore. He's not saying, God, please make it so I don't need Christ on the cross anymore. Make me just such a good person that I can be self-reliant. No, he, he takes account of his own sin. He says, you know what? I am guilty of this sin. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. This is a wonderful prayer. If you ever need a prayer to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He acknowledges who he is. He acknowledges who's in charge. He acknowledges that there's only one source of his salvation, and that salvation is mercy from God alone. This is the perfect reason to be in the temple. He gets it. So Jesus continues in verse 14. He says, I tell you, this man, referring to the tax collector, of course, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, this is not just, okay, the way that I can trick God into giving me forgiveness is to act humble. That's not what it's talking about, of course. It's talking about taking account of your own sin and saying, God, be merciful to me, asking for forgiveness. Now, I often talk about forgiveness, or rather, I often talk about repentance and faith being two sides of the same coin. This, this sinner... He repents of his sin, but he also trusts in God. These things are together. He cannot repent of his sin if he does not trust God to forgive them. He cannot trust God to forgive sins that he doesn't, you know, admit that he has, basically. If he says, you know, I've got no sins, you know, what is he asking for forgiveness for? So anyways, faith and repentance, same side of the, they're two sides of the same coin. He goes home justified. This is a wonderful example that he, so look, um, Zacchaeus, the wee little man, the 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 micro what was it, the microanthropon or whatever, <laughs> the, the micro man, um, he is forgiven. He also goes about kind of trying to make restitution for the things that he's done wrong. Now, in this case, this shows, this is an example of God saying, this guy went home justified. It wasn't that he said, okay, God, I promise to make it up to all the people that, I, that I've wronged. And then only after he's, he's committed his restitution, he's done his penance, only after his penance is he forgiven. No, that is incorrect. The way the Bible prescribes this is he repents and he is forgiven. And presumably, a forgiven person then goes forward justified already 
he goes forward in his sanctified life. Now, he'll his desire should hopefully be to go forward and right those things that he's done wrong, insofar as he can. If you've stolen from somebody, give back to them. Or in the case of Zacchaeus, give back to them multiple fold. Anyways, this is a wonderful text. Um, it's 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 a great text. I would, uh, again, recommend it to pair it with the other texts in the historic one-year lectionary. Psalm 50, verses 7 through 23, Genesis 4, verses 1 through 14, and Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. It, it gets into salvation by faith through grace uh, and an example of of that process in case, in case you get things out of order. In any case, I hope you enjoyed this. God bless and enjoy maybe <laughs> the sermon that I preached this past Sunday. God bless you and take care. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The text for the sermon this morning is from the Gospel reading, which you have just heard. Today's Gospel reading, Jesus tells a parable about two characters, one who is self-righteous and the other who is humble and finds his comfort and his righteousness in the Lord instead of in his own works. To the people hearing the story at the time, the Pharisee would have represented a holy and upright man, a churchgoer. A Bible studier. The tax collector would have represented a traitor, a Jew working for the Romans to steal from his own people to make money, somebody dishonest, somebody greedy. So obviously when we read the when we read the text today as enlightened Americans, we say, well, the Pharisee's the bad guy. Everybody knows that. Tax collectors, they're gonna get the good guy. It's like Aesop's fables. If you know the end of the story, it's not a surprise that the tortoise beats the hare. But to the people at the time, the Pharisee was the good guy. He's the guy who did all the good stuff. He read the Bible. He knew the Bible cover to cover. He followed the words of Scripture. The tax collector was the traitor. Again, thinking the tortoise and the hare. Remember, the hare is fast and the tortoise is slow. It was a shock to the people that the Pharisee was the bad guy in this case. So Jesus uses this contrast. He uses this contrast with the twist on who is the good guy and who is the bad guy. Again, the tortoise beats the hare. That's the twist. That's the surprise. Spoiler alert. Hopefully you've read that story by now. The tortoise beats the hare. The Pharisee does not go home justified, but the tax collector does. He uses this parable to show both a false source of righteousness and a true source of righteousness. The outwardly righteous man, the Pharisee, he's not justified by any of his good deeds, and he does do good deeds. They are truly good deeds. The unrighteous man is just is justified in spite of his bad deeds. Christ died for both of them, for the Pharisee and the tax collector. Excuse me. And both can find salvation in the same place. Both do find salvation in the same place. The cross, nowhere else. As Christians, as we have the whole Bible, we get to read about this regularly, the death, regularly, the death of Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. So this message isn't something new and shocking. In fact, one me- this is one message that I try to include in every sermon, every Sunday morning, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, so that you will be saved. Every Sunday, I hope you hear that message. Christ died on the cross. Salvation is not found in yourself, but in Christ. Now, hopefully, we never get tired of hearing such a message. After all, the Bible tells it to us so many times. But there is another point that Jesus is making in this parable as well. Not just about salvation, but also about the attitude that we should have or that we can have as Christians. Now, ideally, we should have the spiritual posture of the tax collector. We should be grieved by our sins and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
But there are times when every Christian struggles with the pride of the Pharisee. We see something in our lives, we compare our lives to other people's lives, and either we think too highly of ourselves, or we think too lowly of other people, or we completely mix up what, got, what is good and bad in the first place. So the first danger, thinking too highly of ourselves, that a Christian thinks too highly of himself, this might be something like this. Perhaps you've had a sin that you've struggled with, and you've finally overcome this sin. It's not a problem anymore. It's easy to resist. In the past, you've been prone to unrighteous anger, a short temper. You've sinned against other in your, others in your temper. Now, through prayer and effort and dedication and trust in God, over time, you've been able to control your anger, and thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. You're not committing that sin anymore, at least not as much. At this point, you can't remember the last time you lost your temper. I can't remember the last time I did that sin. It's so far in the past. Thanks be to God that he's helped to work in your heart to grow you spiritually. This is a good thing. It is a good thing that you have resisted this sin. So now that you no longer sin in anger, you're perfect, right? It was just that one last sin. <laughs> it was just that one last sin. You just you overcame that sin and now you're perfect. You don't have to worry about anything else. You're good. Your focus on this one sin has put blinders on you. It's taken up so much of your attention. I cannot believe that I keep committing this sin of anger. If only I could stop being so angry all the time. And finally, you overcome that sin. You say, oh, thanks be to God. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross, but I'm good now. I can handle it on my own. <laughs> I can handle it on my own. I'm a good person now that I've completed, I've overcome that one sin. Now that you've gotten past it, you have nothing else to work on? Now it's good to be proud that God has made you capable of resisting the sin. Thanks be to God, as I say. But there is still work to be done in your heart and your life. You have conquered anger. But how about greed? How about covetousness? How about gossip? How about lust? It can be a temptation to focus so much on one sin that you let your guard down for all the other sins. But being a Christian is a full-time job. It is your whole life. There are always more ways that you can love your neighbor and that you can love God. You can always love more. So thinking too highly of yourself can be dangerous because it can cause you not to see the sins in your own life. The other things that Christ died for. The other things that you need to repent of. And the other things that you're forgiven of. The second danger. The second danger of the pride of the Pharisees is to think of others too lowly. If you think of yourself too highly in the first danger, the second danger is you look at others and you think of them too lowly. You might do this by comparison to your own righteousness. After all, you have mastered the sin in your life. You would never fall for the sin of that other person. You know how to handle your alcohol and drink in moderation. But that person, that sinner, who struggles with drunkenness, he has no excuse. After all, it's an easy sin to resist for you. That must mean it's an easy temptation to resist for everybody, right? They must be particularly pathetic, unlike you who don't have that sin. Or perhaps the sin of other people is just worse than your sin. Yeah, you have sin, anger and tax evasion. But your sin is understandable. It's, it's complex. It's nuanced. It's difficult. It's well, Really, it's just a mistake. But their sin, their sin is awful. It's disgusting. 
It's repulsive. It's unthinkable. And dare you say, unforgivable. Your sin. Well, not great, but you know, it could be worse. Their sin. Oh. Oh. Their sin? Their sin. Oh. This is a dangerous thought to have. This is dangerous to look at the sin of others and write them off as a lost cause. I thank God that I'm not an alcoholic like that guy over there. He's probably going to hell. God doesn't let alcoholics into heaven after all. Just tax evaders. I'm not confessing something. I just like using that as an example of sin. This is dangerous to look at the sin of others and to write them off as a lost cause. As if Christ didn't die on the cross for them too. That Christ loves sinners with little sins like you, but hates sinners who commit abominations like them. Seeing the sin of another person should never prevent you from loving them, or worse, for you declaring that God would never forgive them, that God would never love them. Now remember, Christ ate with prostitutes and tax collectors, sexual deviants and traitors, not to affirm their lifestyle or approve of their sin, but because they needed forgiveness, they needed the cross just as much as the Pharisees did, just as much as the Christians did, just as much as your pastor does. One of the major temptations of Christian communities is to segregate sins and to consider ourselves righteous, to shake our heads with the sins and the struggles of others. Imagine a congregation where members look to a mother whose son is struggling with his identity. He calls himself transgender. What an awful mother she must be. What an awful mother she must be. Couldn't she raise her kid better? What about the father whose daughter is living with her boyfriend or has done so with multiple boyfriends? Why doesn't that awful father do a better job disciplining his daughter? Or the young man who struggles with same-sex attraction. Sure, he goes to church, but the Bible calls homosexuality an abomination. Why doesn't he just force himself to stop? To turn from his sinful desires and become heterosexual and normal and sinless like the rest of us Christians. The couple struggling in their marriage. Why don't they just try harder? Why don't they try harder? The man who is struggling with his weight, why doesn't he just stop eating so much? The woman who struggles with her despair, why doesn't she just suck it up like the rest of us? Life is hard. Get over it. After all, Christ died for perfect Christians, Pharisees, not for sinners who can't get their act together, right? Absolutely not. This these hateful words, this is the danger of the pride of the Pharisees, to look at the tax collector, the sinner, and decide that God shouldn't love them. That's the danger of looking down at others and saying, your sin is so much worse than mine. Your sin is so bad that God will not love you like he loves me. It's a lie. The first danger is a kind of pride when we think too highly of ourselves. I've overcome sin. The second, danger, uh, is the, the second danger of that pride is thinking too lowly of others. That their sin can't be forgiven or shouldn't be forgiven. The third danger is misunderstanding entirely what is right and wrong. The Pharisees in the time of Jesus got many things right. They were right about a lot of stuff. They did know the Bible pretty well. God did command them to fast, to pray, and to tithe, but they also got a lot of things mixed up. 
For example, the Pharisees invented a ritual of hand washing. You wash your left hand with your right hand, say a prayer. You wash your right hand with your left hand, say a prayer. You wash both hands together, say a prayer. You do the hokey pokey, you turn yourself around. That's how you do ablutions. This was, a, this was an invented practice of the Pharisees. This was not in the Bible to do this, but they came up with a way to be more holy. Another holy work for them to do. They believed it was a holy, it was actually a holy requirement to go through this special washing process before every meal. And they got upset with Jesus and the disciples when they didn't do it. Jesus, your disciples are already at the front of the buffet line. Shouldn't they be back there doing their third hand washing? And then Jesus gets into them about making up, you know, the, the, the traditions of man and forgetting the traditions of God. In our modern age, there are some churches and some Christians who also get things mixed up. They add to the scriptures or they take away from the scriptures. They take something invented or they take something sinful and they call it righteous. Consider, for example, the tolerant church. The tolerant church. This is the type of church that pats itself on the back for how welcoming, how loving, how unjudgmental it is. This type of church is proud about its pride. What the Bible calls a sin, this church more righteously than God calls a virtue. Love is love. Be yourself. Smash traditional gender roles. Any other such slogans that fit on a rainbow bumper sticker. Such a church may look at traditional churches like Mount Olive, and with all the pride of the Pharisees, they look at this church and say, Goddess, I thank you that we are not like other churches, intolerant, legalistic, and old-fashioned. In those churches, the law is never preached, and as a consequence, sins are never forgiven. Because of the pride of the tolerant church, a person can come to the church with all their sin and leave with even more. What a deal! So much they can't even fit it all out the door. Mount Olive and other traditional churches, other biblical churches, have a different policy regarding sin. You are likewise, you are encouraged to bring all your sin with you on Sunday morning. But we kindly request that you leave it all at the foot of the cross before you leave. In this church, that sin belongs to Christ. He died for it. He paid for it. You don't take it home with you. You're forgiven of it. And it no longer has to burden you. We've got a guy who handles that sin for you. You don't need to come and find a way to deal with that sin yourself. We've got you covered. He's got you covered. Literally, the blood of Christ. Jesus talked about these two men. He talked about the Pharisee and the tax collector. But the glorious end of the story is that the tax collector went away justified without his sin. Now, both the Pharisee and the tax collector were sinners. Both of them brought their sins with them to the temple, as you should. But the Pharisee took it home with him. What was the point in even going to the temple? He took the sin to the temple and took it home with him again. But the tax collector left completely unburdened. Jesus warns about the sort of pride that puffs up, that looks down on those he died for, and that misunderstands or misrepresents God's promises and commands. These things are dangerous, but these are the things that Christ died for. Just like the tax collector, God knows you. He knows about your sin, all of your sin. And he died to forgive you of that sin. Your sin may be awful, disgusting, repulsive, unthinkable, but not unforgivable. 
God loves you so much that he chose you. He called you by name to receive the gospel and the forgiveness of sins. You are not any less forgiven than any other Christian. You are free to rejoice in the love of God and know that today you will return to your house justified. And now the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.